my name is Liliana Feeney. In today's episode of Cooking, Culture, and Everything in Between, I talked with food historian Adrian Miller. Mr. Miller's career began as a lawyer, practicing in Denver. From there, he worked in the White House during the Clinton administration. During his time there, he worked on the One America Initiative, focusing on inclusion. After his time in the White House, he returned to Denver and worked with the governor. He is also a food historian and has written two books, Soul Food, The Surprising Story of an American Cuisine, One Plate at a Time, and The President's Kitchen Cabinet, The Story of the African Americans Who Have Fed Our First Families, From the Washingtons to the Obamas. Both books have been critically acclaimed. He is currently working on his third book, Black Smoke, African American Adventures in Barbecue. His research revolves around the African American culture and history in the American South and soul food. In our interview, we discussed everything from how he became a food historian, to the difference between soul food and southern food, to the Denver restaurant recommendations. Without further ado, here's our interview. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to meet with me. I know you're busy. That's all good. Well, I got plenty of time now. <laughs> That's cool. We all do. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your journey. How did you come to do this? So we, our school has a yearly eighth grade project. And for mine, I wanted to look into how food has helped um, bridge the gap between cultures. Um, and I was originally going to do a couple different, but I ended up looking into Southern food because of the history behind it. And that really interested me. So I ended up looking um, solely into soul food and Southern food. Nice. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Um, so how did you go from being a lawyer um, and a politician to becoming a food writer? So the short answer is unemployment. So I was working in the Clinton White House. And um, after that ended, uh, at that time in my life, I wanted to come back to Colorado and be the senator from Colorado because I grew up here. Oh, cool. But the job, yeah, but the job market was really slow. So I just stayed in DC a lot longer than I thought I would. And mm -hmm. um, because of that, because of the slow job market, I was basically watching a lot of daytime television. I'm not even going to tell you what shows. And I got to the point where I said, you know, I should read something. And so um, I went to the bookstore and I'm browsing the cookbook section because I always like to cook. And I see this book by uh, on Southern food written by a guy named John Edgerton, and it was called Southern Food at Home, On the Road, in History. And even oh. though the book was written a long time ago, you should definitely check it out. Okay. Um, and in that book, he wrote that the tribute to African-American achievement in cookery had yet to be written. So I thought that was really interesting. So I reached out to him, because the book was about 10 years old when I picked it up, because I thought, well, somebody's done that story. Yeah. And um, he said, you know, nobody's really done it. And so with no qualifications at all, except for eating a lot of soul food and cooking it some, that's what started the journey. Oh, awesome. Yep. So why soul food and Southern food? Because um, I know you're uh, from Colorado. I know. Being from Colorado loses me all street cred on the subject of soul food. So, uh, well, that's the food I grew up with because my parents are from the South. So my mom is from Chattanooga, Tennessee, and my dad is from Helena, Arkansas. So, uh, yeah, that's the food I grew up eating. And so that was the food that was my tradition, the food that was most familiar to me. Cool. 
Um, how is food still a big part of African-American culture today? Like, how do you think food and the culture is connected? Yeah, so food is, to be food is about community. And mm -hmm. so uh, it's still a big part of African-American culture, especially any time that African-Americans are coming together. Um, there's typically a, 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 there's a shared repertoire of foods that you could expect to see, um, which are the foods I write about in my book. But, you know, especially like church gatherings, um, weddings, funerals, any aspect of social life. Um, now, the thing that I think is interesting is um, when you look at aspects of black culture, especially African-American culture, almost every part of African-American culture has gone global except for food. So the way that we dance, entertain, play sports, the clothes we wear, the way we weigh our hair, the way we dress, yeah. all of those things have gone global except for food. And so I'm just wondering, why is that? Yeah. I think that's jacked up. And, and to the extent that some soul food has gone global, it's, it's separated mm -hmm. from black culture. Yeah, it's not... It's no longer considered soul food. Exactly. I so, think that's jacked up. Yeah, definitely. Is there, to you, is there a difference between soul food and Southern food? Or are they, like, is there a difference? Or do you consider them the same thing? Uh, the main difference between soul food and Southern food is that soul food tastes better. <laughs> okay, but if you're going to ask for a more detailed answer. No, yeah. Uh, there's more, there's more, um, there's more commonality between Southern and soul. Like, and I can understand why people get them confused because there's a lot of shared ingredients, a lot of shared techniques. But um, I would say that soul food tends to be more uh, well-seasoned. It tends to rely more on what's called variety meats. So those are the funky cuts of meat like ham hocks, oxtails, um, pig's feet. And um, the lines between savory and sweet are more blurred. So an example is um, say, for example, like cornbread. So um, in African-American circles, cornbread tends to have some sugar in it. Yeah. But for a lot of white Southerners, if you put sugar in cornbread, it becomes cake. Mm -hmm. So that's one example of a dividing line. So now that the use of variety meats, just to go back for a second, that is starting to break down because what you're finding is a lot of fine dining chefs are starting to use um, those funky cuts of meat and what they make. So yeah. in, in some contexts, the lines are, are breaking down. But I would say that in general, um, those are the differences between soul food and Southern. So a lot of it has to do with just the way the food is prepared. Okay. That makes sense? Yes. Thank you. Um, so what are some things that have surprised you as you've just looked into the history of uh, soul food? What are some things that you've brought to light that you and other people didn't really know? Uh, so one thing that really surprised me is how much uh, Southern food and soul food are shared cuisines. So because I, I had grown up with this narrative about soul food that it was something that was just made for black people because it was uh, it was the stuff that white people didn't want. And so it was mm -hmm. like the quote unquote during slavery, it was the masters, families, leftovers or their garbage. And, what you know, what I found when I was doing my um history is I found that white people were often eating the same food. So yeah. I found that the differences were really more about place and class and not so much about race. Because pretty much white people and black people of the same class, like same socioeconomic mm -hmm. status, were pretty much eating the same food. Now they weren't eating them together, 
but yeah. they're pretty much eating the same food. So that was a huge surprise because that just upended the whole narrative um, about yeah. soul food. Um, Definitely. That that was one thing, and just uh, I had no idea how much soul food really combined elements from different parts of the world. So mm -hmm. you know, because I just thought it was something that just was created here in the in the U.S. But soul food really draws upon Western Europe, Western Africa, and um, the indigenous people who are already living here. So yeah. a lot of that was all coming together to create soul food. Cool. Um, so I know in some of your research, you've um, looked at how soul food has changed throughout um, history. So how has technologies advancing and things uh, helped advance or change soul food? Uh, that's interesting. So um, I would argue that it hasn't been technology that's changed soul food so much. I think it's been more um, an understanding of kind of the history of soul food. Because what, what, what you see right now is um, I would say there's several branches of soul food. So you've got the traditional soul food. Um, and now in reaction to that, um, because of the health consequences, um, you have a lot of people now eating what's called down-home healthy. So they've been trying to make soul food healthier. Okay. Um, and so that's so one technological advance is the creation of something called margarine uh, so mm -hmm. that people could do that instead of butter um, and sugar substitutes and salt substitutes. Right. Um, yeah. And then you've got upscale soul food, which is really just doubling down on extravagant ingredients um, so that, you know, you might cook with um, heirloom vegetables or heritage breed meat or mm -hmm. saffron, you know, these really exotic uh, things. Yeah. Uh, but the, the biggest trend in soul food right now is vegan. And so, uh, yeah, so vegans, no meat, no dairy and, um, uh, you know, very vegetable based cuisine. And a lot of people um, within soul food circles are arguing that that is the true kind of African way of eating. Yeah, uh, I've sorry. Go, go ahead. In my research, I've looked a lot more into the history of where the different foods came from. So it's just interesting that a lot of the things that are associated now with America really came from different parts of Africa and just different parts of the world. So that was one thing that really interested me. Right. And then another trend you're seeing is um, kind of uh, what I would call fusion. So uh, combining of like Latinx and soul food. So there's a place in Atlanta called the Blacksican. That's his name, not mine. And he has things like collard green quesadillas. So, uh -huh. and then there's a, in Denver, actually in Aurora, there's a place called Cora Faye's Cafe, soul food place where they have something called soul rolls. So it's egg rolls filled with soul food. So like, oh. a, so imagine an egg roll filled with mac and cheese. Yeah. So it's like stuff like that's happening. Um, so yeah, I don't see, I don't see it so much as technology because in, in many mm -hmm. ways, the, the way that soul food is cooked, um, it's, it's very similar to what it was uh, 200 years ago in terms of technique. Yeah. And so I understand that in your book, you, uh, The President's Kitchen Cabinet, you've also looked into that in the White House. Is there a difference between how it's advanced in the White House and how it's advanced just in um, normal people's home? Oh, yeah. So the White House is a different story because you definitely see uh, leaps in technology. So yeah. the, in the, you know, the first, I would say, 75 
well, no, let's just say 50 years of the White House, uh, the people cooked in fireplaces. Um, but then when you fast forward uh, to 1850, then that's the first time a coal range, basically a stove, a coal-fired stove is put in the White House. But then it's not till 1930s that electricity is put in the White House kitchen. Yeah. So, and is that a lot different than how um, in the average person's home technology advanced? Yeah. So yeah, yeah, the White House would have been ahead of the curve for most people. Uh, they probably would have still been cooking with coal ranges and, and things like that by the 1930s. But so th in many ways, the White House has been um, ahead of the curve. But I would say in the last 50 years, I would say the White House has been a little bit either just on the curve or maybe even a little bit behind. I would say that probably restaurant kitchens and hotel kitchens probably have more advanced equipment than the White mm -hmm. House has. Uh, and I'm not talking about a huge advantage, right? Yeah. But, yeah. They're probably just a little bit behind the curve. Do you have any ideas of why that is? Well, I think the problem is, is just that the White House is publicly funded. And so, you know, the Congress is not going to spend a lot of money on the latest, latest yeah. gadget. So we have this thing where we want we want the best for our presidents and the first family, but we don't want to pay for it. Yeah. So which spills into a lot of other aspects of society. So I think we just Definitely. I think it's just a funding issue. Cool. Um, so your upcoming book is about um, barbecue. So what have you found? What are some things you found during that that a lot of people don't know? Um, I don't think people understand that barbecue is Native American in origin. Um, mm -hmm. I think a lot for a lot of reasons, people think that African-Americans invented barbecue. And I, I just haven't found that to be the case. So I think it's a Native American in origin. But then European grilling techniques and then African ways with seasoning and other things all come together to create what we call Southern barbecue. Yeah. Um, and so that that was a big takeaway. And then I don't think people really understand how much African-Americans were linked to barbecue in our nation's history. So uh, even in the late 1800s, there were newspaper articles that had recipes for barbecue and the recipes included in the instructions included black people. So it would say you'd have to have an, it would say you'd have to have in that language of the time, it'd say you'd have to have a colored man do this or do that. So that shows you how linked African-Americans were with barbecue. So to yeah. get to a point now where if you look at food media now, you wouldn't even know that black people barbecue. Yeah. It's pretty much the only people who get celebrated are white dudes. So food media is basically telling African-Americans we're just not that into you when it comes to barbecue. Yeah. So I know a lot about, er, in my research, I've looked into how barbecue first came to the United States, but I haven't looked a lot into how, what it's, how it's transformed after it came to the United States. So do you know anything about that? Yeah, so there's, there's so many different barbecue styles. So mm -hmm. um, essentially, the earliest form of barbecue in the United States was digging a trench so you would dig a, a trench in the ground and you would cut chop down some trees and cut you know cut them up into wood pieces and then you would set the wood on fire till it burned down the coals and then you would lay a grate over the trench and then you would have your pig or whatever it didn't have to always be a pig it'd be a cacao mm -hmm. lamb whatever you would butcher that and then you would butterfly it and stick poles through the legs and so somebody had to be there and flip it so it didn't burn and then you had a separate fire on the side so you could replenish the coals while it wow. was cooking. 
So it was really labor intensive. So I don't, I don't think people really understand how much work went into the early barbecue. Mm -hmm. yeah. So how has, how have techniques changed today? Like how have they, what well, are some you know, in between yeah. points? So the big, a big, a big leap went from that outdoor digging in the ground to building brick and metal pits to simulate the trench. But the biggest uh, effect now is gas. So most, most barbecue places are cooking with gas smokers. And the reason why they're doing that is because um, you can have a huge smoker now, you can control the temperature, and you can put a lot more meat in there and have yeah. more consistent results. So as barbecue has become more and more popular, there's been a demand. The, the demand has increased. And so now barbecue joints have switched to gas cookers just so they can have more predictability. So um, you know what they do to fake the funk is even though they're cooking with gas, they'll, they'll light a fire so that you smell smoke. And so you think that they're cooking with charcoal and wood, but they're actually cooking with gas. And so in your opinion, does that make a big difference between the taste of the meat or? Um... I, yeah, I think so, because um, there's something about that charcoal taste hitting uh, the meat that's, that's just um, unmistakable. And, uh, you know, it, it, gas cooked barbecue could taste good. I don't know if yeah. you can call it barbecue, but... Um, you know, there, there are a lot of gas smokers where you can actually create a charcoal taste because mm -hmm. you can actually, you know, you know it'll, it'll give off some smoke. So, um, you know, for somebody who really knows what they're doing, um, it can re produce a great result. But to me, there's just nothing like that cooking outdoors over wood taste uh, that gets lost when you're doing gas cooking. Yeah. Um, so are there any topics that have come up during your research for your other books that you would consider, um, writing about or looking into more in the future? Um, that's a good question. Um, uh, I, I definitely would love to, uh, write about African-American street vendors. So they came up in my soul food book. So basically these people, street vendors were the food trucks of the 1700s and the 1800s. So in many cases, like uh, even enslaved people were allowed on the weekends to take food from the plantation that they grew on their own and go to town and sell it in the market. And you've got examples of people actually buying their own freedom. That's how much money they made. So I, I think that's one book that I would love to write in the future. It's just more, more the story of these African-American street vendors and how they did what they did. And the cool thing is that I actually have the lyrics of their street cries. So I have the words that they use to sell stuff, and I actually have the music. Oh, wow. So if somebody who knows how to read music and sing, they can actually replicate what people were hearing in the 1700s and 1800s. Um, and I'm just going to put it out there. I'm going to try to reach out to Beyonce and have her do one. She can sing about lemonade if she wants to. So that, it's, I know that's a corny joke. But um, another thing I'd like to write about is just kind of African-Americans in early Colorado. Because mm -hmm. we had a lot of next-level African-Americans here during the first 50 to 75 years our state existed. And I, I, I would love to tell their story. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned earlier that you love cooking. Do you find that that helps um, connect more with your research and your the topics that you're researching? Yeah, that de definitely helps because you get um, it helps to just kind of put yourself in the mindset of a cook of that time and figure out what they were thinking. And then when you look at cookbooks, you're like, okay, I can see why that person did that. Or mm -hmm. at least a really interesting um, 
conclusions. Like, for example, I was looking at the early history of peach cobbler. And in the early days of peach cobbler, believe it or not, they would actually cook the whole peaches with the pits, which I think is kind of dangerous because you might choke on that yeah. pit. But um, towards the so those were recipes from, say, like the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s. By the time you get to the 1890s, people are cutting up peaches or using canned peaches, um, but they're no longer using the pits. But that's when you start to see vanilla extract and almond extract added to recipes. So to me, that shows that that may be a cook's attempt to approximate the taste that was left by the pits in the earlier recipes. So I, I you know, I just really love finding things like yeah. that. Yeah. So it helps. So now, you... I definitely have to learn more about barbecue because I know that when my barbecue book comes out, most of the questions, even though my book's a history of African-American barbecue, most of the questions I'm going to get are, hey, man, I'm trying to do this, and can you help me make better brisket or whatever? So I know I'm going to have to give tips. Yeah. Um, what do you, right now, um, considering uh, all the, the books you've written, uh, what are some of your favorite dishes to cook? So my favorite thing to cook is greens and black-eyed peas. I, those are the two things I love the most. I could eat those... I can, I'm not going to say I could eat those every day and I love it, but I could eat those multiple times a day, a week. And uh, those, are, those are my favorite things to cook. Uh, and then there's also a hibiscus aid that I make. It's kind of like a hibiscus Kool-Aid where I take the flower petals from the hibiscus flower and uh, basically add ginger, a little bit of sweetener, and then um, make a very refreshing drink. It's pretty awesome. Sounds delicious. It is. No joke. Are there any, um, is there any food that you wish you would be, you, that you remember from when you were younger, um, when your family would make it, that you still haven't found a, the same way of doing it? Uh, it's only because I haven't tried, but my mom used to make something called calzones. Now we called them, I don't know if you know it, but it's basically, it's like a, imagine a pizza folded on it itself. Have you ever had one? So you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay, okay. So we call them cannolis, which uh, obviously, if you know Italian food, is that was the wrong thing. It's really yeah. a calzone. I've never made those, but my mom used to make awesome ones. Oh, man. I have great memories of that. And then my the first thing that I made, we called them uh, Indian tacos, but it was essentially the Navajo fry bread, where you, uh, mm -hmm. and it's, it's very similar to a sopapilla, but basically you take the fry bread, make the fry bread and then you roll out patties and fry or not patties but roll out you know well, i guess patty is the right word uh and then fry it and then you top it with beans. you know like what you would do on a taco a taco or a tostada yeah. man that was good i have memories making that the only problem is it was really sticky so i think that's why i haven't made it recently because it was really sticky yeah that'd be frustrating it. to work with yeah but great results though once you got that down great results no doubt so, uh, growing up in Colorado, do you think that has impacted uh, your books and your research at all, um, comparing whether you grew up in the South or just grew up eating Southern food? Do you think that's kind of impacted the way you've looked at Southern and soul food? I think so, because I think uh, growing up in Colorado, growing up outside the South has given me a critical uh, dispassion. So mm -hmm. it allowed me to be objective about what I was looking at. Now, the trade-off is not growing in that place. There's a lot of stuff I had to learn. 
and a lot yeah. of stuff I probably know. I probably have a deeper understanding of the topic. So um, that was the trade-off. But I think uh, being outside the region allowed me to say, you know, okay, this seems to be the story. This seems to be what happened. Um, and I, th I think that helped me be just more objective about it. So I wasn't a complete homer about yeah. the cuisine while I was writing about it. Do you think being um, a lawyer and being in politics has helped or uh, hindered your soul food journey at all? Yeah, um, being a lawyer definitely helped because it helped with the writing. Because the, the soul food book was my first time writing a book. But being a lawyer trained me for that moment because two things you learn as a lawyer for sure is how to critically think. So, uh, and then also how to write. Now, um, that doesn't always happen for lawyers. I just happened to be at a mm -hmm. law firm where there, I, I was trained by two very good lawyer uh, writers. So that helped me uh, pull off that book. But I think the real, the real big thing was the critical thinking because yeah. it, it allows you to get information and assess, okay, is this true? What are the, what would people think about this? What are the questions I need to answer? And so that gave a depth to my research. Politics, um, it's more about just building community and connecting with people. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think the lawyer part really helped. Yeah. And then just a fun question. If there's only one food or one type of food that you could eat for the rest of your life, what would it be? And, and I have why? no health consequences? Nope. Not thinking about anything related Barbecue. to health. Sorry? Barbecue. Definitely barbecue. Uh, yeah. I love barbecue. Cool. And most specifically, it would be pork spare ribs. But I, I would eat a variety of barbecue options. But that, that, I just, that's my favorite food. Awesome. Is that why you chose to do your book? Or is there anything else behind that? that um... uh, yeah, because I love the food so much. But I'm just, it was just bothering me that African Americans are so un underrepresented in food media about barbecue. Yeah. So uh, I just wanted to really find out what was the story with that. Do you find that there are any other foods that um, African Americans are disconnected from? Or well, I think Southern, yeah, I think Southern food, because what I write in my soul food book is that for a long time, Southern food was thought of as a shared cuisine. I mean, it was just understood that mm -hmm. African Americans and whites cooked that. Um, but then in the 1960s, there was a separation. So Basically, African-Americans said, well, soul food is our food and Southern food is kind of something else. So soul became black and Southern became white. And I think we're still living with the legacy of that today. So mm -hmm. one of the most vibrant discussions right now, and you'll find it in your research, is this idea of culinary justice. And the idea is reintegrating the African influence back into Southern food. Because like barbecue, when you look at media accounts of Southern food, you don't often see African-Americans represented. Yeah. Are there any outlets that have done a good job of integrating and giving African-Americans credit? Or do you find that most have just skimmed over that? Most have skimmed over that. I would say in recent years, I think some um, media outlets like Bon Appetit magazine, I think is mm -hmm. starting to do a better job. And there's some websites like called First We Feast and some other websites that I think are being more intentional about saying uh, so showing a diverse representation of these cuisines. There's still a lot to be done, but I think it's got, it's definitely gotten a lot better in the last couple of years. Yeah. So. Um, do you
do you think that's because of people like you speaking up or is there a different um, reason or motive for them doing that? Oh, no, it's all because of me. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I think, I think, I think it's because of me and other people are a bit more vocal in the last yeah. 10 years. So I think that's, that's helped. Um, and, you know, the other thing is you've got some white people who are receptive to that. Because mm -hmm. as, as being on the outside, we could talk as much as we want and complain and critique, but unless there are people on the inside who are receptive to that message and start to change what they're doing, you wouldn't make as much progress. So I think it's been yeah. um, a one-two, you know, one-two effect. Yeah. Um, are there any resources that you would suggest that I just check out, um, look into to find that you've used or that you would yeah, recommend? Yeah. So do you know about the Southern Foodways Alliance? I do. I haven't looked very much into it, though. So Yeah, so they've done a bunch of oral histories. So uh, you should definitely look at the oral histories because they've, they've interviewed a lot of interesting people. Okay. Uh, so depending on where your research is going, uh, that, that would be a great resource. Uh, that book I mentioned, John Edgerton, Southern Food, At Home on the Road in History. Okay. I would check that out. Um, there's a book called The Jemima Code by mm -hmm. Tony Tipton Martin. I would check that out. There's another book that uh, has been getting a lot of publicity uh, called The Cooking Gene by a guy named yeah. Michael Tweedy. Um, so you want to check that out. I'm trying to think who else, kind of the big books. Oh, there's another book. There's a guy named John T. Edge. Now, he's with the Southern mm -hmm. Foodways Alliance. You might want to check out The Pot Liquor Papers. Okay. Kind of a more recent history of Southern food. Yeah. So... Um, and then a, a book you really want to, so just a woman named Jessica Harris, she's really the, uh, kind of the pioneer of connecting West Africa and food in the Americas. Mm -hmm. Uh, so you might want to check out her work. Okay. Um, I'm thinking the best one. Hmm. Uh, she's got a book called the welcome table that was okay. came out in the eighties. That's a good one to look at. She's got another book called high on the hog. You might want to check that one out. Okay. You already have all of these? I just have two of them. So, it's, yeah. Okay. I have Which ones her, do you have? I have the Pot Liquor Papers and I have the High on the Hog book by Jessica. Oh, okay. Okay, cool. Um, I do want to look into the Cooking Gene as well. I've looked, uh, I've heard a lot about that one as well. So. Okay. Um, but also the other ones. I just hadn't heard of those. Gotcha. Okay. And then last question, are, what are some soul food restaurants in Denver that you recommend I check out once this, once I'm able to? Yeah, so uh, in Denver proper, there's really only one left, um, and that's uh, the Welton Street Cafe. That's right so, by your school. Yeah, okay. Uh, what's, what's your school? Uh, Denver Language School. Okay. The middle school is currently at the Gilpin campus. Um, oh, gotcha. So Five Points Neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can go there. There's another one right by Manual. It's called Jenna Ray's, but that's more okay. of a that's more of a I would say it's more of a quick order place. Maybe not so strong on the soul food vibe. Although the catfish sandwich is pretty slamming. And then in Aurora, there's a place called Cora Faye's Cafe. Okay. Um, and that's on Aurora. That's on um, that's on Colfax Avenue, past Chambers, like heading east. So it's it's closer to like. Colfax and Himalaya. Okay. Some people say Himalaya, but that's not right. It's Himalaya. So those are the two places I think of. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for 
taking your time to do this interview with me. I know you're a busy person. Oh, yeah, not a problem. So good luck on your project. Thank you. All right, peace. Thank you so much. Bye. I would just like to say thank you one more time to Adrian Miller. Next episode, I will be interviewing a chef from a new southern restaurant in South Carolina, who also happens to be my second cousin. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Stay safe and thank you for listening.